0: You guys, one of the things that I just love about God is that he is unquestionably intent on life and flourishing. It's a non-political statement to say that God is pro-life, like he's just about life and thriving. And the scriptures reveal a God whose creative power set in motion the taming of chaos and the creation of life. During this particular season in the Northwest, during harvest time, the life-giving work of God is on full display. If you just walk in most of these neighborhoods, you'll see apple trees just laden with heavy apples falling to the ground. It's ridiculous how much life, when you consider that each apple has a bunch of seeds in it, each one that could be its own tree, and it's just laying all over the ground. We were at the pumpkin patch this weekend, and each of those massive orange gourds, has hundreds of seeds in it, each seed of which could be multiple pumpkins. I mean, that's thousands of more pumpkins per seed every year. That's just amazing. And at home, our potatoes are ready for harvest. The the potatoes I particularly have in one of our half wine barrels is what was started from a Yukon gold potato I bought at Costco last year, quartered up, set in water, started to sprout, and now there's dozens of potatoes in my yard from one store-bought potato. The natural world doesn't just reveal a God who kind of creates some life. It reveals a God who creates extravagant life, trees dripping with fruit life, pumpkins splitting open and creating hundreds and thousands more just by natural process life. And when it comes to human beings, the scriptures reveal a God who's not only for life, like, oh, go ahead and see if you can do something, but he's for human flourishing he desires flourishing in our bodies and in our spiritual lives, our lives with God. He desires flourishing in our relationships with people and with our families and with our friends and neighbors. And, and God, is, so says the Bible, desires flourishing in things like our economics and our public policy, in our creation care, and in our education. And the scriptures reveal a God who not only creates us, but he calls us his image bearers. He gives us such dignity, and he calls us agents of his shalom or his holistic peace. And it's another way of saying you are an agent of God's flourishing in the world. Now, for all of the potential for human flourishing that that God has, has put into the human being, we have Had a pretty hard go of it if you just kind of look at history. um, Through selfishness and fear and insecurity and trauma and any number of other factors, we might call it our baggage in today's colloquial, colloquial terms. We tend to want flourishing for ourselves, but frankly, we get a little selfish about it. And that often means that other people don't flourish as well around us. And so, God, like, you know, He's like, He created us, and he knows the potential for sin and all of that stuff, and so he gives us guidelines and prophets and priests and kings and scriptures to kind of help us out and to set some boundaries and to show us what flourishing can look like, but people over the time, over over the centuries, generally rejected these things, and so God, at a point in history, comes himself in the person of Jesus and he comes to live a life of human flourishing to both show us what it's supposed to look like and to pave the way for us to have new life free from sin and shame and death. Now that little recap of God's heart for human flourishing is important because that is who Jesus is. Jesus So says the scriptures and eyewitnesses, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the way to experience human flourishing. And that means that what Jesus teaches us leads to human flourishing. Now let's remember that as we explore our text today, which is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And that text is Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You'll notice we're just walking right through the Sermon on the Mount, taking section by section. And that section goes like this. These are Jesus' words to the crowds. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. You know, if your right eye causes you to stumble, if causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you because it's better for you, lose, for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go Into hell. Oh God, this is a difficult word. At face value, it freaks us out. What is it you're saying? It's convicting. It sounds a little weird. It sounds dangerous. And I pray that in this preaching moment, you would reveal to us what it is you have to say for this group of people, myself included, in Bellingham in the 21st century. Open our minds and our hearts, especially for those to whom this is a familiar passage, and help us to receive you afresh. Amen. It's not a light statement that Jesus makes, and that's why... I wanted to start off the sermon by reminding us that Jesus creates us and that he desires flourishing. Because when it comes to sexuality, it is so easy for us to miss the mark. And it's important to say, I think, just to say up front with clarity that Jesus is not against sex or pleasure, and Jesus is not, as someone who is in the flesh himself, He's not clueless to how difficult it is to live with some kind of purity in our sexual lives. I can say positively that Jesus created humans. He created us, every one of us, in His image. He created us male and female. He created us us as inherently, that means automatically. As sexual beings. That's not a mistake. That was his intent. He created our bodies with crazy hormones that draw us to be sexually attracted to other people. He, he did that on purpose. And, and in commanding us to be faithful, I mean, to be fruitful and to multiply in the covenant of marriage, Jesus is basically commanding us to have sex. <laughs> so he's all, he's, he's all about it. He created it. It's good. So you could say that Jesus knows all about the mysteries and the power and potential pitfalls of sexuality. And I want to say this, that at best, sex can strengthen the bonds of two people, almost like a, a spiritual, emotional glue in the covenant of a marriage relationship. It's not only made for procreation, but for mutual enjoyment, as an intimate sharing of self to the person you're committed to before God and community. But with such a powerful potential for bonding and vulnerability comes an equally powerful potential to destroy relationships and to destroy humanity when sex is practiced outside of these covenant commitments. So way back in Exodus, God gave the Israelites these commandments not to commit adultery and not to covet your neighbor's spouse. The two different commandments in the Ten Commandments, and they both deal with similar ends of the spectrum there. Now, why does God seem to care so much about people's marriages and about their sex lives? Contrary to many, it's not because God is prudish, and it's not because God is a fundamentalist Christian. He's not even a Christian. He's God. (laughs) Um, God created sex, right, and he made it to be pleasurable. So, God is not so interested in your sex life as he is in how your sex life impacts your soul and the good of others. He cares about sex because it's linked to human flourishing on the one hand or human destruction on the other. Now let me just take a minute because I know I fall into this trap. I'm a 21st century American person. And I think as an individual, my out-of-the-box perspective is how is this statement referring to me? And let me just remind myself and you along with me that Jesus is not preaching primarily to individuals. He's calling a community to himself. Pay attention in the Gospels how many times Jesus says to people, follow me, follow me, follow me. He's building a new community around himself. He, Jesus is calling people to be a community that reflect his goodness and his holiness back into the world. So it's not just about you and me, as great as that might be. It's about a community. And healthy communities are made up of healthy singles and healthy relationships, healthy friendships, healthy marriages and healthy families and healthy people, according to the guy who made people, Healthy people don't commit adultery. Adultery destroys trust. And in adultery, the offender takes the intimacy of sexual relationship that's designed for marriage and betrays their spouse and shares that intimacy with another person. Broken trust destroys marriages and families and children. And many of you know all too well Adultery can shake our very trust in the idea of marriage and commitment. Now, our culture, actually, compared to maybe a couple generations ago, talks a lot about sex. We think that we're pretty progressive in how we talk about it, and it's portrayed in movies and music and all kinds of things. Um, and, And our culture talks a lot about sex as a private thing. Like, you do you. The Bible also talks a lot about sex, but it doesn't talk about it as a merely private thing. The Bible agrees that sex is deeply personal, but it's never private. One of the things that Jesus does is he takes the private life, what people do in the bedroom, and he makes it a matter of public health. Let me say that again. Jesus takes the private life, what our culture says is just a private thing, and he makes it a matter of public health. Because he knows that what goes on in our hearts and our souls, even behind a locked door, has implications for community. I've been reflecting on how Scripture talks about sex and adultery, and that's where I got the sermon title that you might see on your bulletin for today's message, Just Sex? And in my mind, that that title has a double meaning. On the one hand, it's a response to our current cultural moment that sees sex as just sex, just bodies, just two consenting adults. You know, what's portrayed in film and sitcoms is a world in which consent, not commitment, is the standard for sexual intimacy. Like, if it's okay between two people, as long as they're consenting, it's cool, and that's how it goes. And I think consent is important. Like, lack of consent certainly makes those actions wrong, right? And then we get all kinds of abuses and things like that. But consent between two human beings does not make right actions that God declares out of bounds. It seems to me that uh, on a lot of shows and movies that I watch, and especially in popular music, uh, um, that everybody seems perfectly happy, like casually hooking up with various partners, and after all, it's just sex seems to be the vibe out there. And in such a culture, is Jesus' teaching on adultery even relevant? Like, is it just totally missed the mark? Well, I think it's particularly relevant. Like, I need this voice in my, in my ear and in my heart to remind me that what I'm watching on TV or hearing in my, the newest pop song is not like the standard that's going to lead to flourishing for my life, okay? I think it's particularly relevant for a few reasons. First of all, It will never matter to God that everybody else is doing it. Like, if you have kids and they do something wrong and they say, well, everybody else is doing it, you know that's just really bad logic. Like, you don't need to be a philosopher to understand that 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 doesn't line up. And and so everybody else is doing it, or that's just the way the culture is, like, that just doesn't hold any water with with God. And it shouldn't really hold any water with us either. Um, Jesus takes this stuff so seriously that he says it would be more beneficial for you to pluck your eye out, like if, if, if you have a, a wandering eye, uh, it would be better for you to pluck it out and just throw it away than, than end up with the consequences. Or if your hand, somehow, you, you, know, you keep touching people or it's causing you to say, cut it off, throw it, throw it away, because it's better for you to be like a stumpy than, than to, to continue that, that life, right? Please, literalists, don't mutilate yourself. <laughs> Jesus is using hyperbole, which means an intentional exaggeration to get a point across. But I will say, just because Jesus is saying, using hyperbole, he doesn't want you to pluck your eyes out. He doesn't want you to cut your hands off. He wants us to see how serious it is. That's pretty serious, like eye plucking, hand chopping, offing is, is a serious thing. So he's got my attention, okay? He's saying that faithfulness with our sexuality is that important. He's saying that sex is never just sex. Second, you have to remember that Jesus is calling people to follow him. He's saying, hey, do you want to find flourishing Remember this crowd of people that came to him when he was sitting on the mountain? It starts in Matthew chapter 5 and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. These are a bunch of people who are looking for help, rescue, teacher, show us what it means to flourish in life. He's saying, hey, hey, if you're poor in spirit, if you declare your need for me, just, I've got you. Now listen to this. And then he lays, lays out this vision. Put your trust in me. This way of living, these sexual ethics, these are for followers of Jesus. So while adultery is horrible and destroys lives, it should not be surprising that it happens all the time, that lust happens all the time. It shouldn't surprise us at all. Jesus is talking to a group of people who want to follow him. He's not giving rules for for the whole world, although I think the world would be better if we followed these rules, but these are for people who are wanting to follow Jesus. The command, then, isn't intended just for the general public in terms of a standard that people are held to by God. I mean, frankly, without Jesus, we're in a whole—like, people are in a, in a lot more trouble than just what they do with their sex lives, right? Like, without Jesus, that's a whole nother ball of wax. What Jesus is doing is saying, like, you want to follow me? I, I, let me share with you what human flourishing looks like, and here's my manifesto. Here's my vision for human flourishing. But, you know, if there was any further question about whether or not Jesus' teaching is relevant— about sexual ethics. Just consider the actual fallout of adultery. As a pastor, I have way too frequently seen spouses ripped apart, families ripped apart. Adultery has ripped churches apart. Children who have had their faith shaken in their earthly role models and thus their views of God shaken And some of us are sitting here in this room, adult children, still suffering from the fallout. Who of us doesn't, you know, struggle with trust because we've seen brokenness in our parents or close relatives or elders in our church or people we looked up to and trusted, maybe pastors, right? The fallout is, it's like nuclear fallout. It, It is so hard to heal from. There's no winners. The sickness spreads to the point where the ability to trust other people and to have faith is just chipped away. And the natural inclination becomes skepticism and cynicism. You know, Jesus isn't just talking to married people. Maybe you're here this whole time, you're thinking like, oh, why did I come to this one? It's just for married people. Uh, no, he's talking to a crowd of people of all ages, and to men and women. He's got a whole diverse audience here. Um, Jesus isn't just talking about marriage and adultery. He's also talking about our very hearts and our very desires. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, you don't have to be married to look with, you know, has already committed adultery with her in his heart, right? Jesus shows us what we already know deep down to be true. It's that our hearts are the place where corruption happens. It's the seed of our heart where our good intentions come from. It's the seed of our heart where our evil thoughts and our words and our deeds come from. Our hearts reveal what's really in us. Listen, in the ancient world, like, this isn't new stuff. Like, in the ancient world, adultery was illegal in a lot of different cultures, way before even the Ten Commandments and certainly before Jesus. In the time of Jesus, Caesar Augustus, the evil emperor of the Roman Empire, even outlawed adultery in certain in- instances, especially if women committed it. There was usually a, uh, you know, he could smooth over if certain high-class men did it. Just making something legal or illegal doesn't stop the problem. These laws, by the way, in the ancient world against adultery, they're only there to protect men, not women. Uh, They are there to protect family names, not families. These laws are there to motivate obedience out of fear, not out of a place of a transformed life. I mean, God's laws are different. Yeah, there's consequences, but they're, they're really to get our attention, The real consequence is the ruining of the human soul and human communities. Adulteries kills souls and kills communities. And when that community is supposed to be the new people of God, which is what churches are supposed to be, the stakes are pretty high. And that's where the second meaning of my title comes into play. I've talked about how Jesus' design for sex means that sex is never eh, just sex. It's never just casual or non covenant forming in Jesus' eyes, right? But Jesus is also concerned with justice when it comes to sex. He teaches and models a just sexuality. Jesus teaches that if a man looks at a woman with lust for her, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. But the gospel is played out in the early church and in the writings of Paul and the other apostles till we know that this type of teaching applies to everybody. Women lust. Women get addicted to sexual content on the internet just like men do. Lust is an equal opportunity sin. And it needs to be said, I think this is really important, and I just shout out to all my, um, all my teenagers out there, because I remember what that felt like to be a teenager, that lust is not attraction. <laughs> it's not attraction. Attraction is normal. <laughs> Noticing when someone is beautiful or hot or, you know, attractive, that's, that's normal. That's God's design. Uh, lust in the Greek language refers to the force of looking at someone with the intent of lusting after them. It's actively pursuing to objectify another human being for your own pleasure. Lust is a sin because it unjustly dehumanizes a human being, and it turns the focus of someone's attraction, it turns the, uh, the, the focus of someone's attraction, a human being, and it creates them into an object. And i tell you what else happens. And I've noticed this in my own life that when we lust after people, when we objectify other people, it dehumanizes us as well. There's a consequence for us. When we lust after other people, we begin to approach the world and other image bearers of God. We begin to approach them as a predator, as someone who seeks to capture an image or a feeling and making someone else another human made in God's image as the source of your own content or pleasure. Just like Jesus' words on anger, this commandment should make us all squirm a bit, like everybody's sort of convicted by this statement. And I hope it brings a healthy, holy conviction where conviction is needed. Like, I think it's healthy for a... Our culture doesn't like to tell us the truth very often. It's usually a thumbs up, you do you as long as you don't tread on me. I mean, that's what we get. Like, I I appreciate that Jesus loves us enough to kind of tell us what's up. And I'm convicted by this statement in Matthew 5. And we need to sit. It is good for us, if we're followers of Jesus, it is good for us to be uncomfortable a little bit and to say, Hey, my heart is corrupted in this area. I need help in this area. But let me tell you what is not good. Conviction without a solution is not Christian, and it's not good news, and it's not from God. Conviction without a solution is not from God. The good news is that it's Jesus who is teaching us the Sermon on the Mount. It is Jesus who brings conviction to us. Jesus being involved in this teaching makes it good news because we know he's for us. We know he's for human flourishing. And Jesus makes forgiveness and redemption and healing possible. Yes, even for you. Yes, even for me. No matter where you've gone. That's really good news. That's part of the message You will likely never meet another human being who has not struggled with their sexuality or struggled in particular with lust. You just probably are sitting next to someone with that same struggle at some point in their life. It's a human thing. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is telling us what human flourishing can look like. He is painting a picture of, of what is possible. But the fact that he's teaching these things at all is a sure way of knowing that he knows we all need help in these areas. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to teach it. So don't load yourself up with shame. That's not a God thing. Conviction is a God thing. It it lets us know that we we need help and Jesus is the one who offers us the help because we all struggle. Jesus is giving us a vision, a, a recipe for flourishing, but he's also, he's not just a teacher, is he? He's not just a, a giver of laws, he's also a pastor. In John's gospel, we learn that Jesus is called the good shepherd. And pastors, like me on Sundays, preach ideals. Here's the vision of what life can be like. But in the other six days, what good pastors do is they walk with where people really are. And that's what we see Jesus doing over and over again in his ministry. Jesus loves us enough to teach us what is best, and he loves us enough to forgive us and to work with us, no matter how low we've gone, no matter how stuck we are right in this moment, no matter what may come in your life. The Good Shepherd pastors us. Amen? Amen. Corey read from the 8th chapter of John's Gospel earlier in the service, John tells this story of a woman who's caught in adultery, and she is caught in the act. Like, these leaders, I don't know how they knew, they they walk in on her, and this unnamed person, uh, it's it's all too common that the man isn't even mentioned in the story. Isn't that just typical, right? Uh, The woman is dragged into the temple square, And if it's historically accurate as what was commonly done, she's probably stripped down, so she's not wearing much, if anything at all. It's intended to shame her, right? And according to Jewish law, she could have been stoned to death. The religious leaders use this woman. They don't care about her. They use the woman to try and trap Jesus, to see if he's orthodox And to see if he really followed the law of God. I mean, he's the lawgiver. I mean, it's crazy, right? But anyway, so they don't realize that, of course, that that the one that they're trying to test is God incarnate. They don't get that. And and they were so tone deaf, they they don't even consider how unjust they are in bringing the woman into the public square as an example while not doing anything with the man who's equally culpable. And when this woman caught in the act of adultery, God's seventh commandment was brought to him. What does Jesus do? He does two things. The first thing that Jesus does, the lawgiver who says do not commit adultery, is he pastors and he forgives her. He shows her grace and a new way of life. He's come to preach the good news to an adulterous woman and to the men trapped in poisoned ways of thinking and freedom to slaves of sexual addiction and healing to those victims of the sins of other people. He's there to say Jesus saves, Jesus rescues, Jesus sets free. Jesus does all this through the work on his cross, which grants forgiveness to everybody who repents. Everybody. Yes, you. Yes, me. Everybody. And Jesus does the freeing work for those who feel trapped in in ruts of, of sin or addiction or whatever it is. Jesus does the freeing work through the power of his word and prayer and Christian community. And Jesus does this freeing work through healers like counselors and therapists and pastors and support groups and often teams of these people in our lives. We need all the helps. And we've talked a lot about mental health over the last few weeks, and, and, and I just want to continue to beat that drum that it is a normal thing to need counseling. It is a normal thing to need help with our emotions and our past, just like you would get help for, for a broken leg or a broken arm or, or some kind of internal sickness, right? It's, it's, it's normal. As they're the same. The second thing that Jesus said to this woman caught in adultery after he forgave her is to go and sin no more. To go and to enter into the new life I've just made available to you. To go and be new because of me. Go and live rightly related. Go live in faithfulness. Go practice justice, truthfulness, loyalty. Not just in your sex life, but in friendships. Be truthful and honest and live to the fullness of life. And now that you're learning to see people as image bearers of God, not as objects of your pleasure, go and live justly. And how you operate your businesses and how you contribute. Students in the classroom or teachers in the classroom. Uh, how you contribute to those dynamics in the social circles in which you are. How you play sports. How you work. How you invest your finances. Now, my sense is is that every one of us needs some help in this area, either from healing or from present mentality or a lot of a lot of it all. And as we prepare now to come to the communion table, let's, let's just still our bodies and our minds and come to Jesus, laying our struggles before him in silent confession. Let's invite him to heal us where we're broken, where we feel stuck, and to set us on a path of healing and freedom. Let's, let's do that now as kind of our prayer of confession as we enter the table.